Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with reporter Bill Blakemore. Blakemore is an ABC News reporter who primarily covers the Catholic Church and global warming issues. In 1987, Blakemore penned a widely read and highly influential essay for The Washington Post on Kubrick's The Shining, where he observed the film's veiled preoccupation with the genocide of the American Indian. Well, it's, I had to ask myself that question when I found myself suddenly aware of all kinds of things in this movie. How come I saw this? And nobody else did at first. And let me just say at the very top that it's very clear that Stanley Kubrick does not want anybody to see all of this at the first viewing because the movie is also about our denial in America of the genocide of the American Indians and about our denial as a species of any of the genocides or other horrors that we commit. And he is so great an artist that he has figured out how to make a movie um, showing us the horrors and the blood upon which our nation, like many nations, are built. Um, and because he often spoke in interviews, uh, not that he did that many, um, about uh, – I'm sorry, there's a siren outside. I hope that doesn't – you can probably no, hear fine. it. Okay, I'll just that's, go back to that. Very, very faint. Okay, he 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 spoke from time to time in interviews about the fact that he knew that, uh, or to or to friends who reported it, that he knew that people would um, come back and view his movies over and over again. Saw no reason why they shouldn't be seen over and over again. Knew that the technology was coming, and so even by 19 in the late 70s, um, uh, this came out in 1980, I believe, he already knew that the technology was going to make it possible for people. Um, as easily as it is now to see movies over and over again. So it's a movie that um, is about the fact that we see it in front of our eyes, but we just can't uh, admit to it at first, about mm. psychological denial. So I'm sorry for the preamble to your answer. Um, I grew up on the south side of Chicago where, uh, among other things, the Calumet City and Calumet River are just to the south. And Calumet is the French word for peace pipe, the first French explorer's word for peace pipe. And, the, and Lake Michigan there was first explored by French uh, uh, explorers before the, the uh, British, I believe. When I was a kid uh, spending summers in the sand dunes of western Michigan, my dad took my sister and me out um, when we were about 10 to, to find, as he'd heard we would, and we did little pieces of Indian pottery. So early on I was aware um, of the genocide of the Indians. And then I became a, a journalist in the Middle East. Um, uh, in high school, I learned about the horrors of the Holocaust in the 1950s, Red Anne Frank. Then I came to cover wars in the Middle East and uh, 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 the, the Israelis, the Palestinians, the horrors of what had come out of Christendom for all of the Jews, the horrors of other genocides. And, and there, of course, have been five of them since the Holocaust, the Nazi Holocaust. It's something our species does. Anyway, it was 1980. I was with um, three friends. Uh, I was based in Beirut. We went to see this new Sh Kubrick movie, and I already knew that he was uh, 
the greatest kind of artist uh, ever since uh, 2001 came out. I'd realized this, or so I felt. And so I saw it first in 1980 in that version, which is 18 minutes shorter than mm. the version that is now seen in the United States. And I got to know Leon Vitali recently, his assistant, who said that Stanley Kubrick was insistent from there on out that there would be in perpetuity two versions, what, what Stanley, as Leon calls him, called the American version and the international version. We can get to that in a minute. Anyway, <laughs> I was terrified by the movie. I went in intentionally knowing nothing about it. I hadn't read the King book. I, uh, I, I gripped the belt buckle of my, of, of my belt during it. I was so frightened I might fall off my seat for terror. I was really frightened by the movie. Uh, and when it was over, and the four of us were driving up out of the underground parking lot, I remember, I, said, I suddenly said to my, my friends, that movie was about the genocide of the American Indians. And they said, what are you talking about? And then I mentioned the Calumet baking soda can in its first appearance. I hadn't yet realized the second appearance of them. That appears on the shelf right behind Halloran's head from Danny's point of view, straight on. You can read the full word Calumet at the moment that, in that moment of astonishing cinematic beauty, when, when Halloran, while still talking to Wendy, turns down and looks down at Danny and shines tele telepathically at Danny, how do you like some ice cream, Doc? Mm -hmm. Now, that was a, I, there's, there's serious symbolism going on here. Um, and this was later confirmed by his co-writer, uh, uh, that this Indian stuff was all quite intentional. In fact, in one of the books um, of Kubrick, you can see there's a photograph that is described as Stanley Kubrick carefully arranging items on the shelves in the, in the cold locker room there. Um, I went back and saw the movie again very soon after that and saw that there's a second time when, he's, uh, when Jack is in the uh, cold storage locker room when he is uh, talking through the door to the ghost um, of, uh, of Grady. And behind Jack's head in that scene, there's about seven or eight, I don't forget exactly how many of these Calumet baking powder cans, none of them straight on. To me, these represent the dishonest treaties between white men and, and, and what we know happened with the, the, the horrible urges in, in the forces that uh, overswept Native America. So that was... That's what triggered it in me. I had this background of because of my work and where I grew up being being somewhat sensitive to um, to this big problem. Why does our species constantly keep doing this over and over? Um, and as I said at the end of that uh, article, I, actually I figured everybody would you know people would realize this because it was kind of obvious. The Indian symbolism is there from beginning to end. I also remembered after the first. Uh, that first screening, when I, you know, caught my breath and was sort of, my, my heart stopped racing when we were coming back out of that garage, I remembered that Jack, that great shot behind Jack where he is throwing the ball so insensitively up against the wall, against the, the, mm -hmm. the Indian motifs, and I remembered noticing that there was American Indian motifs on one or two of the bits of uh, clothing that, uh, that Wendy's wearing. So I put it all together, I went and saw it again soon after and saw that that was the overall thing. I don't remember now whether I had noticed um, Ullman telling them during the tour that it was built between 07 and 09 um, on an Indian burial ground uh, and that they, in fact, had to drive off a couple of raiding parties while they were building it, which, of course, is a key to it. And, and by the way, that's the only, if I'm not mistaken, the only verbal reference that yeah, Kubrick yeah. left in in the shorter version. That's, mm. how it, 
that's how it got started. And um, by the time, seven years later, I figured somebody would figure this out and write it down. And um, seven years later, his next movie was coming out. I'd seen the posters that uh, indicated that there was a similar theme. I thought, my goodness, nobody's noticed this yet. And so I... I uh, I called up the New York Times. They said, no, they already had three articles on Kubrick's next movie. I called up the Washington Post. They said, yeah, they'd be delighted to have it, and they published it. And in the process of writing, you always learn. And, of course, I ended with that uh, that line, you know, um, the only time Kubrick ever he, – he hated to talk about about what his movies were, quote, about. Right. And, and, and somebody once asked him, and it got into an interview, so what's the movie about? And Kubrick said, <laughs> it's about a man who tries to kill his family setting up my, my favorite little great closing line in that article, if I may say so myself, that family is the family of man. Mm-hmm. Because we're dealing here with uh, the, the greatest of artists. I, I often suspect, who knows, but I often suspect it's not unreasonable to think that in a few centuries he may be looked back upon as the master artist in any medium of our, of our era, possibly. And, and um, you know, he took so long to make a movie, um, and each movie was in a different genre, and it's been occurring to me as I've been pondering it in anticipation of chatting with you. It's not just that he did a movie of each of the genres in order to 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 show what this genre is about, what that you know, and, and conquer each of the genres. This was his only quote horror film unquote. So great an artist is he? So so he, I think of him as the first genuinely international, global artist, not international, global artist we've had. And we know he was conscious of the great movie theaters in every city around the world. He was even trying, in a certain sense, to show what each genre means. In other words, what is a horror movie? What is a science fiction movie, 2001? What is a love mm-hmm. story, Eyes Wide Shut? And this is his movie... Um, it's certainly also about other things. It's 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 more than any other, I think, in some ways, his movie about what is America, the United States of America. It's it's a movie which is about the creative process, of course. It's about what marriage is like. There's been many interpretations, but I think they're all true. They don't contradict each other. But underlying it, Kubrick is so great an artist that he is trying to boil down, I believe, in each of his great movies, everything he possibly can, exhausting his sense of reality as seen through the prism of a horror movie and thus conquering the genre at the same time. Sorry for such a long answer, but as you can tell, no. I get kind of interested when you ask me questions about Stanley Kubrick. It's infectious, your, your enthusiasm for it. It's terrific. Uh, it, but these were themes that uh, obsessed him over the years, and, and I think it's why he continually returned to the, to the war genre. Uh, he was fascinated by the phenomenon of, of conflict and war and what it was in us that just uh, that that had that in us, that had that need for conflict. So right, and you know, when you say the war genre, there's only uh, two or three that are actually what you might call war movies. Mm-hmm. But war mm-hmm. is in co- in conflicts in all of them because he did so many other genres. I mean, one of the things, as I ponder him more, and like the greatest of artists, Chaucer and Shakespeare, who I believe Kubrick is the equal of, I often suspect <laughs> his movies. They, they, there are many themes that are in each of his movies. There's, there's, there's a little bit of love in each of the movies. There's, there's some war or conflict in most of them. Um, uh, you know, you, you put me in mind of that great quote. Um, I forget where I read it. Somebody was talking to him about the fact that his movies so often show us the dark side of humanity. He said, yes, yes, they certainly do. 
But there's also a there's also a positive side to that, and that is sh showing that we can express the dark sides of us, the, the horrible sides of us, the horrors we commit, shows we can get our mind around it, and there's hope in that, mm -hmm. because we can objectify it. And indeed, his last movie, whether he sensed it intuitively or not, who knows, is a love story. You know, Eyes Wide Shut is is um, is a love story, a realistic, deep love story about a faithful marriage. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I had a fellow come into my office. He was one of our guards at ABC uh, some years ago, and he's, he saw the Eyes Wide Shut poster on my wall, and uh, he said, oh, I'm not going to see that movie. I said, well, it's disgusting. I, mean, I said, really? <laughs> he, said, well, he said, well, I, I saw it, but I'm not going to let my family see it. And I said, uh, well, what, why? Uh, and he said, well, it's just disgusting. And I said, well, what, what happens in this movie? He said, well, all of that. And he started to think. And I said, is there any act of um, of, of uh, unfaithfulness in this in this movie? And he stopped and he thought about it. And he realized that, of course, there isn't. It's a story that's got lots of universality in it, in love and marriage. It's maybe the ultimate movie in some ways about love and marriage. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is no act of unfaithfulness between the married couple. Except, of course, mentally. But then again, hello, welcome to the human race. <laughs> right, right. You know, and in the end, they work it out. It's, uh, uh, I don't know. You can tell from the way I talk that I just continually am refreshed in thinking about how every time he made a, one of his mature movies, and that's most of them, Stanley Kubrick was trying to universalize his material as much as he possibly could to what is the human condition on this planet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so this, you know, this was, what is the human condition on this planet as seen through um, the genre of horror or the expectations of horror? I mean, I mean, Stanley Kubrick was never in the business of entertaining us in the way that we expect to be entertained when we come into the theater, which is... I've heard some uh, critics say possibly a definition of what good art is anyway. It always it, you know, subverts you, surprises you, turns the cliché on the ear. Yes. And they, mean, and they mean something different to me now, his films, than they did upon first viewing. I mean, they're, 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 their meaning and their emotions expand for me. Uh, maybe, maybe it's because I'm at a stage in my life where I'm more receptive to them. But the, the, the Shining, you know, it ends in that famous maze, yes. uh, which is apt because a lot of his films work like that as well, uh, where you're, you're kind, they're so mysterious to, to me, so many of them. And, and you uh, articulated some, like the, the poster, for instance. I thought this was fascinating, something that I hadn't considered. The poster for The Shining it, it made the themes that you're discussing pretty explicit when it said the wave of terror which swept across America – is here. Yes. <laughs> but this was the poster was produced before the film even opened. <laughs> yes. Yeah, now Kubrick is playing with us in, in, mm -hmm. a, in, a, in a delightful way. There's a pun there. He knows you're going to come back and look at it a second and third time and say, aha. See, here's another one of the things about his movie. Um, and, and by the way, what you just said, I've heard from so many people, feel it myself. Um, the reason I consider his films in, in a class like no other possibly, maybe there's one or two other exceptions, is that every time you you see one of his movies again, it gets even better. Now, there's a, there's a whole, to my mind, there's a whole class of movies 
which are really excellent films. And whenever I come across them uh, zapping around channels, uh, you know, I'm delighted to see them again every two or three years, like uh, All the President's Men, for example. To me, of course, it's my profession, but I love watching that movie again, but I know what I'm going to get each time. You watch a Kubrick movie again, and you're going to get even more than you ever got before. It's as if he's figured out with this, the depth of his boiling down and boiling down the universalities, how to, almost as if he's managed to make a movie that plugs into reality so that each time you see it, it is it is going to suggest even more, and you'll discover even more resonances that are built into it without having pandered to your surface expectations the first time. He He's deep into what our psyche and our psychologies are that get entertained um, in, in the most profound sense of that. Um, I'm sorry I got off on a, on a tangent there. but the, No. no. What, now what, but, but that's what, what you just said you're experiencing, I think, is what many people experience with uh, with Kubrick movies. I mean, I just saw another movie for the first time the other day, Invictus. Now, mm -hmm. I found that to be a kind of a perfect, wonderful, excellent movie, and I expect that in future years I'll feel about that movie the way I do, for example, about um, uh, um, All the President's Men. I'll love seeing it again each time. But each time I see it, I'll, it's because I like that flavor. Each time I see yes. a Kubrick movie again, I'm going to get even more than I ever knew before. <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Paradoxically, I, now it's, sorry, I got off on a tangent. You asked me a different question. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. It, it, it's all golden. Everything that you're giving me. Uh, before I let you go, oh, oh I know what it was. I know what I was going to say. Forget sure. this, this is about The Shining, right? Mm -hmm. um, from beginning to end, The Shining is full of mute evidence, or rather nonverbal reference to the genocide of the American Indians and to American history. In fact, it's pretty explicit in some places. There's only that one line about the Indian burial grounds in the overseas version. And the, and the second line about the uh, about the, uh, the the decorations in the Colorado Lounge when they're being given the tour in the American version of the movie. But here's what I rather suspect Kubrick may have meant as he discovered what this movie might do, since it is also a movie about our denial, our inability to see it. Um, he's even playing with this when he has Jack say straight into the camera, talking uh, to Lloyd, the bartender, kind of slow tonight, isn't it? And as Kubrick said, the, the longest lines are not always outside the best restaurants. Matthew Modine says that in his, in his little diary about Full Metal Jacket. Mm -hmm. I rather suspect that once you... After you see the movie, if you're lucky enough to see it the first time without knowing any of this, and you see it cold and innocent and get terrified by it, and experience the terror that that the little family in the hotel experiences, not knowing quite why you're scared, and then go back and come to realize little by little that it's a movie about the horrors of genocide, the horrors of empire sweeping across, uh, driven partly by extractive industries going after gold, the gold room, the cold room, that G is sort of written like a C in the movie. Um, I, I, by the way, I, I went up to Estes Park and talked to the guy that owned and managed the, uh, the Stanley Hotel uh, mm -hmm. some years later, and he told me about, he told me about the uh, winter that Stephen King came and, uh, and lived there writing the book, and then how Stanley Kubrick called him up very soon afterwards and talked to him a long time, and that Stanley Kubrick then sent a team of researchers who spent three months 
in Denver in the library and in Estes Park, getting every little bit that they could of – I mean, I learned all of this much later, right? Every little bit they could of local lore so that Cooper could build into it the real history of the West and the Colorado Gold Rush and what it did to the Indians there. Uh, and, and by the way, um, referring to something else, when Kubrick's co-writer, Diane Johnson, the novelist for this film, yes. was interviewed not too long ago, um, in one of the interviews uh, that I read of this, the interviewer said, uh, Ms. Johnson, there's, a, there's some references to the American Indians uh, uh, there in The Shining. She says in that interview that I read, oh, Stanley had that stuff all figured out before he even came to me to work on the film script. I mean, she was giving us direct confirmation there. I intentionally never met Kubrick because I didn't want to know what he was trying to do. I didn't want to have my, my interpretation of him or any of his movies vitiated by what he was trying to do. But I'm getting off my point, which happens with Kubrick. The thing <laughs> is this. I rather suspect that Kubrick invented something extraordinarily important for us in understanding the horrors that we commit. If you were lucky enough to experience this movie um, innocently, so you just get terrified by it, innocent of all of these me meanings that have everything to do with uh, the genocide of the Indians and the other horrors that swept across America as it was built by the European culture, and then, re and then realize that that stuff is there, you can then go back and see the movie again knowing both levels because you can remember the horror you first felt at each scene mm -hmm. and now realize as you're watching it another time that this is um, emblematic of or representative of or a tiny microcosmic version of actual horrors that happened um, to, to the Indians and others. You can make the connection in a way in your own memory of your first viewing of the movie. And Kubrick has done something astonishing there because, of course, it's impossible for any one individual to feel the horrors of an entire race being hounded to death like the American Indians were or like the Jews in the Holocaust or the victims of any of the other five genocides since the Holocaust. An individual can't do that. But an individual who has seen this movie, been terrified the first time when you see it innocently, and goes sees it again, realizes what it's about, and remembers that horror the first time, it's a pretty close proximity to beginning to feel the horror. And yeah. and Kubrick, remember, was later worked a long time on a movie about the Holocaust, uh, and then finally said um, when when Steven uh, Spielberg's uh, Schindler's List came out. Well, I guess I won't have to do it now because that's come out and it's sort of changed the general thinking about it. His wife has subsequently told us that that Stanley got extraordinarily depressed um, while work, as I've known other Holocaust scholars do when they start working on the Holocaust, because you can't believe, you just can't believe that humans mm -hmm. could be so, uh, you, you begin to, and so he, he was relieved about it. But there are one or, there's at least one academic now, a fellow, I read this book a few years ago, who's writing at the universe, one of the universities in Michigan, I forget exactly where, who says in his book uh, about Kubrick, he says, he tells that story I just told and says, but actually Kubrick had already made his Holocaust movie. It's The Shining. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it, it, it has that universality to it. Sorry to go on with a long answer, but <laughs> no, no. This, this is. I could talk to you forever, but I, I, I know you're, you're pressed for time, so I, I just have one more question for you. Sure. About the Shining. What do you think? It's. I guess my question is: Is it a hopeful film in the end? Because, uh, what does it have to say about the sins of the father being passed to the son, and does Danny escape that in the end? Is that hopeful? Yes. Well, I mean, 
of course, Kubrick has said, as soon as you can get your mind around it, um, around the horrors, that's hopeful. Now, Kubrick is going, I think, always for the most universal. Trying to, you see, this, this movie is itself a shining through the layers of history. Mm. When you see this movie, he knows that by universalizing what happens in history, he is seeing through the layers of history, like Danny does like Stanley Kubrick does, like this movie does. And in that sense, it's hopeful, because, I mean, I've always felt that Danny himself um, embodies um, Kubrick, and Kubrick knew that in a certain way Danny was a, a stand-in for him. There's that line in it where uh, Grady is, uh, the ghost Grady is talking to Jack in, the, in that red men's room, mm -hmm. and I think that's where this line comes out, and Jack says... You know, he's being informed by Grady that um, that his that his boy is out of control. I think he's and and, the, and I think he's that he's trying to contact the cook or something. And and Jack says, I forget exactly the the words leading into it. Yes, he is. He's talking about his son Danny. Yes, he is. Is a very willful boy. Mm -hmm. Now that's a little resonant of things that were known of Kubrick from the beginning of his career making movies. So the hopefulness to that that you refer to there, and I guess you get a sort of a sense of hope too, right? That yeah. Danny gets out, the mother and Danny get out, the the primal child, uh, mother and child escape, uh, the men go nuts, the mother and child escape, because, I mean, Jack is in some ways the ultimate victim of the movie. I mean, let's not forget, it's at the end when even Wendy begins to see the ghosts who have done all of this, the last ghost she sees is of a very classically rich guy with a bald head with a tuxedo who's drunk in this party. And a, and a friend of mine who studied the psychology of war says the worst killing happens towards the end. There's this speeding up toward the end of this movie. And mm -hmm. she runs up to the top of the stairs trying to catch, trying to get to Denny, who, who Jack is after. And there's this drunk guy with, with a, literally blood on his head, visual, mm -hmm. verbal pun, uh, holding out a, a little glass of whiskey or something, saying, great party, isn't it? Like he uh, stands in for all the best people who have come to this hotel, the magnates, the rich people who who, who provided the money for the horrendous uh, genocidal armies pushing across and getting the land in, in the tragic beginnings of our uh, the United States. Um, she, she sees the horrors. We see through all of the horrors at the end. The movie itself, Stanley Kubrick has allowed us, once we understand what the movie is really meditating upon, to see through all these horrors of mystery – and then this maze of America, which is represented by both the hotel itself, which is compared to the maze itself, the moral maze. Danny gets out by retracing his own steps, which I've always felt is sort of like a pun of, of acknowledging history, you know, retracing mm -hmm. your steps, seeing where you've been. Jack, who's a blundering idiot, just keeps going forward and freezes in it. And then they escape in, that, in the, in the snowcat. And Kubrick very subtly, as the snowcat begins to make its way up to the road to make its way down the mountain. Kubrick moves a curtain of fog across it, as if to say to the audience at that moment, if you all want to know what happens to Wendy and Danny, that's not what this movie's about. You mm. can presume, if you want, that they're going to get out all right. We're going to go back, and I'm going to give you a last puzzle um, to walk out of the theater wondering about. And he zooms in slowly over that beautiful music back to the ball in the 1920s, and there's Jack at the beginning of it in the Overlook Ball 1921, and there's the last – he forces you all, as he does with many of his movies, he forces us to go out saying, what was that about? And we ponder it. And, of course, 
the overlook ball. We overlook what we did to the Indians. It was not in July 4th, 1921, I think. It was not an Independence Day for the Indians. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so I think I love your question because that's exactly right. The hopefulness of it comes when he says, look, the child got away. The child who could see through the layers of history. And his mother caught up with him at the end. She started seeing all the ghosts of the past as well. They're very yeah. real. And, and Kubrick's only comment when asked about ghosts says, he said, well, you know, I've always been told that people who have seen ghosts say that they're very flesh and blood. They're just like a person standing there. They're not this filmy Casper the ghost kind of thing. And that's Kubrick giving us another hint that he's making a movie about us, about real history. Mm-hmm. And the hopefulness is that he shows us yeah, you can presume the mother and child got away. Let me just review briefly what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with our own history. You you can see you can see through history and those are the ones who escape. Jack doesn't see through anything. He's drunk by the way. You know, there's he's a bit of an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um which also can obscure your your universal sensibilities if uh, you know, alcohol in that way could. Um it's part of the whole overall way that the that the horrors happened there. So you're, you're darn right. I hadn't thought of it this way. In a way, it's especially hopeful at the end because in this movie he's done exactly what he talked about in general and showing us that he's done it. If we can get our minds around it, if we can see the horrors that we've committed, there's a little bit of hope there. You know, yeah. go down the mountain. Yeah. Nice question. Did you know, did you know about the, uh, the deleted scene that, that he took out at the end of the film? I've heard about that. The deleted scene, I understand it, is uh, similar to one that was in the book where, if I'm not mistaken, it's where Halloran visits them in the hospital or they visited Halloran. No, 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 Halloran's dead. What am I talking about? It's the owner owner of the Overlook, the one that looks a little like John F. Kennedy. He he comes in and uh, and and and, and uh, you know talks to Wendy for a little bit and then goes out to the hall where Danny's playing with his trucks and talks to him a little bit. Goes to leave, turns back around, and says, "Hey, Danny," and tosses him the tennis ball. You're kidding! Now that, I, I doubt that that yeah. exists anymore. No, Kubrick Kubrick probably incinerated it, but it and, actually. In fact, I, I asked Leon Vitali, his assistant, and Leon Vitali told me how Kubrick had him. Take all of the outtakes and have them burned while he watched. But so, but wait a minute—is this a character who is actually in the movie? Yes, he's the one that uh, that uh, kind of shows Jack around the hotel at the very beginning and explains the murders that occurred. Almond the manager. Early. Yes, yes. So, so tell me. No, this is intriguing to me. Tell me what. <laughs> tell me what the scene was. It, it, it's it, Wendy and 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 Danny. Wendy's in the hospital recuperating. Danny's out in the hall playing with his toy trucks. All, Allman goes in and and consoles Wendy. Goes out, talks to Danny a little bit. Goes to walk away. Turns back around to Danny and says, "Hey, Danny," and tosses him the tennis ball. Oh wow! I'm getting chills. I'll tell you why. That is <laughs> chilling. <laughs> well, I mean, it it um, no, because suddenly I'm understanding the. The, the greatness even more of Kubrick here. I mean, that fits perfectly. He was mm-hmm. he was clearly doing a horror movie, so he wanted to go for a horrifying end. So Ullman turns around and tosses him the tennis balls, which indicates that the, it goes on. The horror yeah. goes on. Because, of course, there's that great shot in the movie where Danny's playing with his trucks and the ball comes rolling up, and we don't know who rolled it, mm-hmm. but it leads Danny to go into room 237. And it all started with a tennis ball that Nicholson threw against the wall and, and threw it into kind of a darkened abyss at the end of the hall. Right. So obviously, I guess what's happening here is um, 
is Kubrick was with that ending thinking of giving us another symbol that shows this uh, this this ball keeps bouncing down through mm-hmm. history, mm-hmm. and and now comes the question: Why did he cut that out for the American audience? It was it was in there for a few days and then he cut it out be- before the, the American version was done. Right. And I, I I mean I wonder if that scene was there after the scene that he did close out with the push into that picture. Um, no, it came right before that. He still ended the last shot of the film with the picture. Ah, he probably well, he probably I'm well, I'm thinking about that. My my thought is he he would probably decided that was he didn't really need it. It was a little bit too hitting you over the head with a hammer or something. Mm-hmm. He made his point and it was much it was much cleaner without it cuz he didn't really it sort of brought it down to something a little bit too gimmicky, too much like a Romana clay or like a here's a key it was like having two symbolic scenes in a row, and he just figured the picture alone would do it. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Well, you know, I sent a question into Kubrick at one point when I was uh, um, uh, thinking about, you know, I don't know if it was before I wrote that article. I think it was. No, let me think about. It. No, no, I, I, I had a friend, Jack Lawrence, who's a, a great colleague of mine at ABC News, uh, is now retired, living in England, who is a, the, who is a great friend of Michael Hare. Mm-hmm. Um, who is the co-writer with Kubrick of Full Metal Jacket. Right. And uh, I was the bureau chief in Rome at the time that I was thinking about the meaning of the movie before I thought I'd ever have to write about it. I didn't want to meet Kubrick if I even could have, and it was very hard to, because I I, 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 I wanted to uh, to be interpreting what was actually in the movies as opposed to what the artist was trying to do. You know, I regret mm-hmm. that now. Who knew he was going to die? I always figured I'd meet him one day. But I knew that if I wanted to find out a fact that that nobody else knew, I could ask Jack to ask Michael Hare, because Jack and Michael Hare were having drinks in the evening in London uh, when Michael Hare was spending his day with Kubrick writing Full Metal Jacket. And so I sent the question in, um, why did he cut the 18 minutes out? Because by this time I'd figured out that that the 18 minutes that were cut out for the international version included some of the um, American Indian references. Mm. I had a theory in my mind that maybe Kubrick would have felt that the American audience needed a little bit more because we're in bigger denial than the rest of the world about what we did with the American Indian cultures here. And um, but naturally, being that we got the benefit from it. And, um, I, and I don't mean to say we is separate from Native Americans, but you see my point. Yeah. And so I, so I sent the question in, and I was always telling my friend Jack Lawrence um, – Please, when you give me the answer, I'll just give me the simple, straight answer to this question. And the answer that Jack told me came from Michael Hare when he asked Stanley Kubrick the question was, um, no, he cut the 18 minutes out because he just liked it better, shorter. (laughs) Now, I don't know – first of all, this is like a game of telephone, right? I don't know exactly what Kubrick said. I should probably go up – I understand Michael Hare lives up in uh, Connecticut nearby here to New York. I should go up and ask him. (laughs) <laughs> if he remembers, but but that that answer would resonate with what you've just suggested to me about about why he would have cut out that last scene. Because I must say that that when you tell me about that last scene, I feel it would be too much now. It would have sort of brought it down, been a little bit gimmicky compo- compared to the beautiful sudden cut from the frozen face of Jack to the push-in to the warm party with the lovely music and the, and that symbolic picture. Yeah. It might have been as simple as 
well, there's no such thing as in a great artist as a simple aesthetic decision. But that might have been what that was. It still, however, leaves in my mind the question that Leon Vitali, his assistant, um, it, it, uh, you know, confirmed to me that Kubrick wanted there to, in perpetuity, be two versions of this movie, the American and the international version. Now, the the American version, which is 18 minutes longer and has more, a few more verbal references to the American Indians. Um, he might want it that way so the people on the land where this horror was committed would always have to be reminded a bit more. But Kubrick maybe wanted that wanted there to be these two versions in perpetuity as an eternal reminder that this is a movie about a horror that happened in America. So we're going to have a special version for America, just that fact alone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, or, or both. Or both. They don't contradict each other necessarily. Huh. I really well, look forward to your series. I've seen the uh, <laughs> I've, I've seen the the website that you're preparing for it, and I I, I expect to learn a great deal from it. Well, I I, I am so inspired by our conversation. Uh, I'm so passionate about movies, and clearly you are too about Mr. Kubrick, and and, and that's so infectious. I, I cannot thank you enough for well, that. Well, no, thank that's you. right. One little fun thing: my friend Jack Lawrence insists that he thinks that the reason Private Joker is, is has a real name, Private Lawrence. Mm. was because of, of Michael Hare's asking him questions in the evening about what they had experienced together back in Vietnam. There's another huh. bit of Kubrickiana trivia to dine out on. <laughs> I, I can't get enough of uh, Kubrickian uh, trivia, that's for sure. No, well, I have a great friend here, Richard Gurdot, who knows an enormous amount about movies. He's a real movie buff, and you know, he's always won the Village Voice trivia contest every year. He's a, he's a very, very smart guy. And he once said to me, oh, you're, you're, you're a movie buff too? I said, no, I'm not, but I am a Kubrick buff. Mm -hmm. I love movies mm -hmm. too. I mean, you know, it's the the master art form of our of our era, as a, as one of my professors back in the '60s said. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Well, I, I'm delighted I, to discover your website. You know, us old people, uh, we're <laughs> we're so inspired by what you young people do with this digital medium. Uh, <laughs> it's well, really you, inspiring. You you inspire me. So uh, thank you for your writing and your great reporting, and thank you for giving me your time. Well, thanks a million. I, it was an honor to be asked, and I look forward to seeing the whole series. I expect we'll learn an enormous amount because, as Kubrick himself, or I'm not sure he did, but other people have pointed out, Kubrick did, almost intentionally it seems, have things in each successive movie that refer directly back to the previous movie. Mm -hmm. And by putting all of them in a row like you have, as I can see on your website already, I expect we'll see the inter-movie resonance again. Um, I mean, I th I think of Barry Lyndon followed by The Shining, followed by Full Metal Jacket, as his anti-enlightenment trilogy, because it moves from the 1700s up to the 1800s and the 1900s in The Shining, uh, up to the end of the 20th century in Full Metal Jacket, moving westward from Europe and its horrors to America and its horrors, and that same culture then pushing across the Pacific to Vietnam uh, in in the latter part of the 20th century, there, huh. there's there's these long wavelengths that work throughout all of Kubrick's oeuvre um, that connects the whole thing together. That is just breathtaking. He every gr every truly greatest new artist invents a new way to be great, and I think Kubrick has done that. 